How you doing? I'm Doug Devaney, and you're listening to the Plastic Podcasts, Tales of the Irish Diaspora, now in its fourth series, Countum Jim 4. We're journeying back through time on today's Plastic Podcast, even more so than usual, as we travel to 1911 in Rangoon, Burma. The British establishment is trying to bring a case of sedition against a Buddhist monk. U Damaloka is an activist who challenges the Empire's attempt at dominating Burma through, in his words, the Bible, the whiskey bottle and the Gatling gun. Now, if this trial is unusual enough in itself, it's made even more so by the fact that U Damaloka was born in Dublin, probably with the name Lawrence Carroll. His radical opposition to the British Empire after years as a hobo in the States marks him out as a particular member of the diaspora. But there's even more to his story or stories than this. Lawrence Cox is an Associate Professor of Sociology at the National University of Ireland in Maynooth and one of the three authors of The Irish Buddhist, The Forgotten Monk Who Faced Down the British Empire. He's also our first guest of 2021 and I'll let him set the scene in Burma. So um, he's being put on trial in the chief court in Rangoon by an Irish judge, it should be said, uh, Daniel Toomey from Carrick Tool. Um, and when he goes to the court, the streets are packed. So, of course, there's Buddhist monks, there's Buddhist laity there, but the Chinese bazaar has shut down. The Indian bazaar has shut down. Rangoon at this point is less than 50% Burmese. The dock workers are mostly Indian Muslims and Tamils. They're there in the streets. He's supported by one of Gandhi's closest associates, so Indian nationalists. The cinema's given two days of its takings to his defence fund. So literally, the whole of colonised Rangoon is there to support this guy, whether they're Buddhist or not. This is not just a trial about religion, it's a trial about the power of the empire. What was the cause of the trial itself? What had happened in order for him to be accused of sedition? So he'd given a talk in Moulmain, southeast Burma, uh, where there was incidentally quite a strong Irish presence. There was a St. Patrick's School, which was struggling with the fact that uh, some of its uppity Burmese students were starting to set up Buddhist associations. And you can imagine how well that went down uh, in St. Patrick's School. And he gives a talk, which is like a talk he'd given, you know, for the past 11 or 12 years in Burma. He was a celebrity preacher. When he toured, people would travel for three days on foot, in ox carts or whatever. He would have thousands of people listening to him. So he's not really saying anything new. And he says, you know, as you've said in your intro, pretty much they're going to come for you with the Bible. They're going to come for you with the whiskey bottle they're going to come for you with the Gatling guns. So colonialism has these three elements, Christian missionaries, military conquest, and cultural destruction. Remember that Burmese Buddhists are at least theoretically teetotal. So he says this, but this time uh, they decide to make an issue of it. They bring him to court in Moulmain. He appeals. It winds up in Rangoon. And part of this is probably because the year before he'd done a very high profile tour in Ceylon, today's Sri Lanka, saying the same kinds of things uh, on behalf of the sort of radical anti-colonialist Buddhists there. So it's become a bit too hot to handle. Part of the reason for that is also that the empire as a whole is struggling. 
So the Irish party has done very well. The Irish party actually holds the balance of power uh, in Westminster and it's extracting home rule. The Ulster Volunteer Force is about to be formed on back of this. Uh, dockers and railway workers are starting to go on strike. There's a gunship goes up the Mersey. Suffragettes are challenging male supremacy. Uh, there is uh, a huge suffragette demo uh, outside the Houses of Parliament in which lots of sexual assaults are carried out by the police and by vigilantes. And India, the radical Indian nationalists whose newspaper is supporting him here in Rangoon, um, Gandhi is taking Indian nationalism further and further down the path of boycotting British goods, of civil disobedience and so on. So the empire, which had looked so solid, is suddenly looking rather rockier. And here's this uppity celebrity monk going around challenging it publicly. So they stick him on trial. More than an uppity celebrity monk, an uppity celebrity Irish monk. He's an Irish monk and an ex-docker. And you've got to remember that a good chunk of the British military in India and Burma are Irish. There is a whole moral panic going on about what happens if the Irish become Buddhist, which we think of as a very weird thing. But Kim, Kipling's absolute bestseller, it's about the son of an Irish sergeant and a, quote, Indian bazaar woman. And is his heart really loyal to the British Empire or is it really loyal to his Tibetan Buddhist teacher? This is a big bestseller. That phrase, The Road to Mandalay, is the title of a book by the wife of an Irish officer, um, which is again about an Irish soldier, in this case, directly the soldier, not his son, uh, who becomes a Buddhist. And which side is his heart on? So what happens if the Irish, who are holding the guns, refuse to obey orders? If they go native, if they make alliances with the natives, the other side. So Irish Buddhists are worrying. And Irish Buddhists who used to be dockers in a town that is basically an enormous port and whose Muslim dockers are themselves um, increasingly allied with Gandhi's wing of the Indian National Congress. That's all a little bit worrying. That's the kind of thing you want to nip in the bud sooner rather than later, it seems. So it would appear then that this would have been almost like some kind of show trial. Pretty much, yeah. And they have a problem with it, which is already in Moulmain, the streets were packed. They had to fill the town with soldiers, with armed police, and then they had to defer the trial because the crowds were so big. They deferred the trial to avoid the demo. They do exactly the same thing in Rangoon. So the trial date was set for today, 110 years back, yeah, 13th of January, 1911. The crowds turn up and whoops, this trial has to be deferred for a week. And then whoops, I have to defer judgment till the end of the month. And when they do bring judgment, it's the lightest possible thing they can get away with. They can't back down, they cannot let him off but they also can't make a martyr of him. And remember, he's Irish. He's grown up in the second half of the 19th century. He knows all about what you can do with being a martyr. So they've got 
is really, really awkward. What do you do at this point? Yeah. So they bind him over to keep the peace. Yeah. Slap on the wrist. Don't be a naughty boy again or we'll come down on you. Yeah. Pretty much like being sent out of the headmaster's office. We don't do it again. So it's a very strange moment. And how effective was that judgment? Um, the judgment itself, not at all. But the wider crisis of the empire continues, the wider repression continues. And the day that his binding over finishes, he leaves Burma. So you have to assume that there were other threats conveyed. We will come after you one way or another. And those don't need to be official threats because he's made himself so unpopular. He is famous for rooting out corrupt officials, for example. One of the big issues in the empire of the day is uh, officials and officers of all kinds uh, have native wives, quote unquote, native families. But uh, after their 20 years service is up, they ditch them. They go back home. They marry a nice English or Irish gal. Yeah. So this is very much kind of in keeping with yeah, the Bespera and the mixed race Irish and so on. They abandon them. But one of the things that Damaloka has done, apparently, is to force the viceroy to say, well, uh, any official uh, who is married to a native woman must make an honest woman of her by actually legally properly marrying her. And that screws all their plans, all their family's plans for inheritance and how the future is going to go and so on. If they are actually tied down to this woman and their kids in Rangoon or wherever it is. So he's got a lot of enemies one way or another. And yeah, he disappears. Uh, so he leaves Burma, he goes to Australia, and then this letter arrives from Australia saying, there's this rather queer character calling himself Udamaloka who's died here. Uh, and if anybody wants his uh, effects, uh, give us an address and we'll send them on. So his obituary goes around the place. Now that letter must have been sent by him. And there's a kind of sort of Interpol request sent to the Victorian police. Has anybody seen this guy? But then just a couple of months after that, he swans into a newspaper office in Singapore and says, I'm not dead. So there's a whole background story that we will presumably never know. It's like, why did he flee? Why did he fake his death? And then why did he go, actually, this is all right. We're talking, it's like a 1911, 1912 thereabouts. And so that's a really, if I may say so, advanced sense of one's profile in the media. He is an absolute demon in the media. Uh, so he's got um, good connections with a number of newspaper editors. Sometimes they fall out. There's an Irishman from Killarney who edits the uh, Straits Times in Singapore, a man called Morphy, who first loves him and then turns totally against him. But he's got those kinds of relationships. He publishes his own stuff. His events are major issues in the newspapers, an awful lot of what we know about him. We know because the colonial press hated him. So they report what he did in the most pejorative possible ways. So that's a lot of the evidence that survives. It's actually the missionaries and 
uh, the gentlemen in the clubs and so on talking about this guy. Uh, he also writes for the papers under false names. Uh, he's got uh, several different false names. One of them rather wonderfully, Captain Daylight. Uh, you might know that Captain Moonlight is the kind of name that you would sign an anonymous letter with back in the day in the countryside if the landlord is raising the rents. And you send a letter saying, these rents are too high, they're not in keeping. Uh, it's really important to lower these rents or your hayricks might suddenly accidentally go up in flames, signed Captain Moonlight. So he sends these things in, signed Captain Daylight. Or that letter from Australia claiming he's dead uh, is sent by um, a Mr Larkins. Uh, this is a year before the Dublin lockout. I think John Larkins, not Jim Larkins, but there's a whole kind of... You can imagine this stuff playing out on social media today. Also, though, he seems to be involved in an awful lot of transgressions in as much as I actually being a Westerner and an Irishman to actually adopt not just Buddhism, but also the, the, the clothing and, 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 and practices of a Buddhist monk is, well, it, 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 runs, it, it, runs, it runs upstream when everything else is going downstream, doesn't it? It's a total transgression, yeah because after the big Indian rebellion of 1857, white people in Asia kind of look at each other and go, there's not an awful lot of us. And there's an awful lot of them. Yeah. So there's various strategies. You know, one of them obviously is to get, uh, to build up the local forces in the army. But another big one is to try and big up whiteness, to try and make being white look like something really, really special. Um, so whereas previously uh, it was a lot more okay to blur some of those boundaries, say back in the 18th century, by the late 19th, early 20th century, to be white is to dress in a certain way. It is to behave in a certain way. It's to try and act like this sahib, this gentleman who is totally different from other people. And that's always easier if you're rich than if you're poor, yeah? An awful lot of poor whites don't particularly want to play that game. Yeah? They actually have local families that they stay with. They're not going back anywhere. They probably, sooner or later, wind up going along to the local temple. They beg, they fight. Um, and if you're a Buddhist monk, of course, you are literally, visibly, publicly begging every day. You know, it's as dramatic as the Hare Krishnas used to be on the streets of Dublin. Really, really startling. Here is a white person, an Irish person, begging, wearing robes, going barefoot. Europeans do not go barefoot with a shaved head, uh, bowing down to a graven idol. You know, they talk like this. There are literally reports of uh, Europeans becoming Buddhists where they are just like, oh my God, he's actually doing it. He is actually bowing down to uh, this idol. And you can sense the shock that people are stepping over those lines of race, religion, color, and so on. So yeah, he's going absolutely in the opposite direction. He is going native. And this is a thing that is really disturbing in a world that's trying to hold the empire together by really, really reaffirming those lines. Yeah. It's like not sitting at the back of the bus. It's that kind of thing.
You're listening to the Plastic Podcasts. We all come from somewhere else. Published by Oxford University Press, the Irish Buddhist tells the tale of a radical at a time when the empire was in turmoil, who challenges the presumptions of that empire, who has a huge amount of local revolutionary and populist support, and who is also a master of dealing with the media. Naturally, I want to know what attracted Lawrence and his co-authors to this story. Well, it was just so boring, you know, so dull, so conventional <laughs> that you had to say, oh, yeah, we should just tell this because it's so typical. Uh, <laughs> so, well, I was looking at um, the relationships between Ireland and Buddhism, okay, for a good long time. Um, for a couple of reasons. One is... Um, Buddhism starts at the opposite end of the continent, the opposite end of Eurasia from Ireland. So it's really interesting to see how the ideas get from one end to the other, but also how people move in both directions. It's a way of telling the story of, well, what is Ireland anyway? What is Irish culture? And of course, particularly when religion looms so large and colonialism looms so large as a shared story, in fact, that we don't think of it today, but um, in the 1930s or even the 1940s, uh, Asian anti-colonialists looked to Ireland because Ireland had broken free from the British Empire. And they were familiar with the Irish through the Irish presence in Asia. So, you know, they translated books about Dan Breen, Michael Collins or whatever into Burmese with lurid, lurid <laughs> covers back in the 1930s. Um, so Buddhism in Ireland, but then when I was looking at this in the 19th, early 20th century, a lot of the stories that were easiest to find were stories of gentlemen. And they were stories of the kinds of people who wrote books and whose archives tend to be preserved, who were part of the establishment, but had this sort of genteel, scholarly, spiritual interest in Buddhism but actually kind of didn't, kind of struggled to get on with actual Asian Buddhists. So, you know, loosely what we call cultural appropriation and started going, well, are there any other kind of Irish Buddhists? And what happened was I came across this story in an American atheist journal. So this is really like being on Twitter today there's this American atheist publication in 1909 that has a letter from somebody who is an apparently an Irish Buddhist in Rangoon saying, you think Tom Paine is great, we think Tom Paine is great, yeah. Big hero of atheists. And my first thought was, this Kentucky atheist, he's just made up this guy because it suits his story. This guy doesn't exist, yeah. Um, and then on eBay, I found an envelope postmarked Rangoon with the logo of his Buddhist tract society. And went, okay, he really, really did exist. And separately, Alicia Turner had discovered him and Brian Bocking put the three of us together. So we started going, what can we find out about this guy? What, what is an Irish Buddhist doing in Rangoon corresponding with American atheists? How does that even make sense? Given the unusual nature of his story, though, why do you think it, it, it kind of disappeared into fragments and so forth before you, before the three of you started to put it together? 
Well, one of the reasons is that he isn't a gentleman. He's totally from the other side of the tracks. Um, but he's pretty inconvenient, yeah? Because Burma later goes the route that Ireland goes of moving from being anti-colonialist to being nationalist, going, we want a state of our own. And you've got to remember in 1900, it's not at all clear that the future after empire is a world of independent nation states structured around the nation or that the nation is going to be identified with a religion, which is what happens then in Burma, as we know with the Rohingya today, in Sri Lanka, and of course in Ireland. Yeah, the history that we're talking about in relation to Bespera and so on. So when that happens, suddenly an Irish Buddhist becomes quite inconvenient in Burma as you know, the guy who launches this shoe issue, one of the key issues in um, the struggle towards Burmese independence is Irish. That's not great, but it's also true in Ireland because this guy, he's not a problem in Ireland in 1911, yet he's in the Sunday Independent for God's sake. And then a summary of it in the Independent afterwards. Irish people in 1911 are actually really interested that there's an Irish guy who's a Buddhist. Remember, like I said, you know, Kim is a bestseller, including in Ireland. Irish Buddhists, they're weird, they're striking, they're not hard to think about. So he becomes forgotten afterwards in both countries. That's really important. One of the big issues in Burma for the first two decades of the 20th century is, can you wear shoes on pagodas? And it sounds very trivial, very silly, but here's the thing. Uh, in Burma, like so many Asian countries, you do not wear shoes in sacred places. You just don't. You remember that Iraqi journalist throwing shoes at George Bush. They're not just a missile, they're an insult. You don't point your shoes at people. You don't bring them, wear them into people's houses. You take your shoes off when you come inside as a matter of common courtesy, certainly not into people's temples. But of course, the British military and police do wear their shoes when they're walking on the on the pagodas, right? And it's not officially allowed, but in practice it is, that, uh, oh, officers and their girlfriends, tourists and so on, wander around the pagodas in shoes because they are Europeans, because no European would demean themselves by taking their shoes off simply because it offends the natives. That would be totally inconceivable. So this is really like, you know, Chinese officers and their girlfriends wandering around Tibetan Buddhist temples, except that it's not the presence alone, it's the presence with the shoes that is a blatant sign of disrespect. And Damaloka makes this an issue on the Shwedagon. Now the Shwedagon is it's in Rangoon, it is the holiest site of Burmese Buddhism. It's such a symbolic thing that the British army apparently have cannon pointed at it. It's an effective threat to say, if you guys kick off, we're gonna blow up your precious pagoda, right? And on the full moon festival, one of the big days of the year, he stops an off-duty copper, somebody who doesn't have a legal right to be there wearing shoes, 
says you can't come onto the pagoda wearing shoes. And this is literally one of those moments when, what do we do? Yeah, yeah. A sensible copper would kind of walked away and come in another, you know, through another entrance, <laughs> or not made an issue of it afterwards. This guy makes an issue. So Damalok has chosen the right person to challenge. Maybe he knows it. Maybe he knows that he's you know, an officious son of a bitch. Who knows? But it becomes this huge issue. Is it okay to walk on pagodas wearing shoes? It's a national issue. And it stays a national issue until 1919. And that's really, so back in 1901, when Damaloka does this, this is really what propels him to national fame as somebody who's actually able to use religion to challenge the disrespect. And behind the disrespect, the conquest, yeah? So he supposedly apparently says, the British have taken Burma from the Burmans, that's the dominant ethnic group, and now they're trampling on their religion. Okay? It's a very visceral image. We are treading dirt on your holy places. And of course, that's something that he knows from Ireland, right? Yes, I was gonna say, it sounds like a very Irish argument. It's a totally Irish argument. And of course, you know, this is now more than half a century after Daniel Lacan. The question of respect for the local religion and the way in which you can use that to say things about empire that you couldn't say outright. That's really important. So Burma's only just finished being conquered, yeah? There's a nasty, nasty counterinsurgency war uh, in central Burma in the late 1880s. So this is not much more than a decade after that. You can't stand up and actually say the Brits should leave Burma. You'd be strung up. But you can say, I'm sorry, sir, you may not come onto the pagoda wearing shoes. And everybody knows what you're talking about. <laughs> You're listening to The Plastic Podcast's Tales of the Irish Diaspora, and now what's described as a call to action. If you haven't subscribed to The Plastic Podcasts already, and frankly, why the heck not, then it's a simple thing to do. Simply go to our website at www.plasticpodcasts.com, scroll down the homepage to the form at the bottom, insert your email address, and press Submit. One confirmatory email click later, and you'll be getting details of each fresh podcast straight to your inbox. It's as simple as that. We'll be back with Lawrence Cox in a moment, but first it's time for The Plastic Pedestal, where I ask one of my interviewees to name a member of the diaspora of personal or cultural significance to them. This week, comedian Zoe Lyons, with not just one pedestal, but an entire band. Music is a big thing for me, and I love music. I love listening to music, and there is something about listening to Irish music that just absolutely just sets me off. Um, and uh, we listened to a lot of folk music when I was growing up, but it was the only thing, wasn't it? With jumpers and folk music. So the 70s were basically Aaron knit sweaters, beards, the persistent smell of heavy smoke, and folk music. That's, that's what it was. It was all in the distant Bowron banging away somewhere. Um, so it would probably be Christy Moore for me, uh, uh, just because his voice is so beautiful. And it, it, it's 
it's it's just got that beautiful velvetiness. It's almost like a sort of oral pint of Guinness listening to Christy Moore. Um, and uh, yeah, so it would probably be him. Or, or the, can I have a band? Can I have an entire band? <laughs> yeah, so it'd be the Chieftains, the Fury Brothers and Christy Moore. That would be it. That would be my pedestals, my musical pedestals. That would be it for me, yeah. Zoe Lyons. And if you want to hear more of what Zoe has to say, why not hear the rest of her interview? Simply go to www.plasticpodcasts.com and click the episode button. You can also hear us on Amazon, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We're everywhere. Now back to Lawrence Cox. Along with Brian Bocking and Alicia Turner, Lawrence has spent 10 years researching and writing the story of Udamaloka. That's 30 years in total between the three of them. Even bearing in mind their other commitments... That's a huge amount of time. Well, look, there's two things. One is this guy tells fantastic stories. Every time he would say something, it would be like, you know, this uh, American atheist in Kentucky. Is that really true? And then half the time we'd find actually, yes, it is. So fantastic stories, the fun of chasing them down. And he tells these stories beautifully. and People say it again and again. You know, he could charm the heart off a wheelbarrow. Remember, this is the guy, he's been a sailor, he's been a hobo, he's Irish for God's sake, and he's an Irishman who's gone native. He speaks maybe eight different Asian languages, not because he's learned them in school, but because he gets on with people. Yeah, he can carry on conversations in an everyday way. So he tells stories. It's what he does. It's one of the big things that poor Irish people have is a fantastic ability to tell stories. So we loved that. But the other thing is, his life really is extraordinary, because I've talked to you mostly now about Burma. But we've mentioned he's a big deal in Sri Lanka. He's a big deal in Singapore, in Thailand. He's active in Malaysia. He's active in Japan. He's active in today's Bangladesh. And then other bits and pieces around the place. He is extraordinarily... Uh, mobile and chasing this down in all these different countries through all the different languages with all the expertise you need to dig up the archives to interpret who on earth are these people what is going on here that's what's 10 years of work for us but it's also a huge testament to who this guy was that he could actually land in Singapore or Sri Lanka as it is today, or Thailand, and do something significant, or Japan. This brings me on to the question of actually what we know of his life and, and, and what, are, what are the stories of his life. And we believe that he was born in um, just outside of Dublin uh, under the name of Lawrence Carroll. I mean, it's like, how, how, how sure are we of that? Reasonably sure. So genealogists tell us, look, this is as good an identification as you're gonna get. Uh, so that Killarney editor, um, is happily saying, well, uh, he comes from Booterstown or Blackrock or whatever. Yeah. Booterstown being a part of Blackrock Postal District, but they're two separate places. So we have this Lawrence Carroll from Booterstown Avenue, Blackrock, uh, who is growing up literally in the shadow of the church. The church is set back from the road because it was built far back enough that his grace, who funded it, the local knob, didn't want to offend his Protestant uh, friends and relations. 
So he allowed a Catholic church there, supported it, but set it back from the road. And in the shadow of this church is where Lawrence Carroll grows up. So there may be quite a background, we've no idea, but we, you can imagine uh, that he didn't have a neutral relationship to the church growing up. But if you stand there and literally just go down the road, because it slopes downhill towards the sea, there's the railway line. And as a kid, if you mitch off school, it's not very far to walk to Kingstown, today's Don Leary, if you turn right. If you turn left, it's not very far to walk to um, the south side of the Liffey and the docks there. So uh, he's taken out of school at 12 to work and around the age of 14, 16, so this is the early 1870s, goes to Liverpool, can't make a living, works his way across the Atlantic um, and starts working as a sailor up and down the east coast of the States. And then he's a migrant worker across the States. So New York, Chicago, Montana, California, which we don't know, but that's, uh, that's a, a sea transport route. Yeah, so that's the Great Lakes. Montana is where you would make the passage across to the upper reaches of rivers that flow down then westwards across the Rockies. So he may have been in fact working on boats all that time. We don't know. We know he says that he was working on boats on the East Coast and then again on the Sacramento River. And then he winds up in San Francisco working on the docks and gets a job uh, on the ships going across to Yokohama to Japan. Then somehow he appears in Rangoon in 1900. And one way or another, there's kind of 25 years suspiciously missing from his biography then. So you start to get a picture, yeah? He's got all these different, you know, at least five pseudonyms that we know of. He's got this, in Asia, we see this trial for sedition. We see him under police and intelligence surveillance. We see him faking his death. We see him eventually disappearing. But we also see this interesting little quarter century gap, which he never talks about. You know, for somebody who was very happy to talk about himself and loved stories, he doesn't talk about it. But somehow he appears in Rangoon in 1900 as somebody who is really quite a seasoned activist, who knows how to hold a public meeting, who knows how to put an organization together, who knows how to choose his moment for a sort of direct action like that one on the Schwedigan with the shoes. He knows just how far to push it with the British Empire. So now we funded people to spend like a year trying to track him down in the States. And it's bloody hard work. Yeah? Working men in this period who had reason to kind of go under the radar, change their names and so on, they did. Yeah? So that five pseudonyms, it's not uncommon for the arrest record, say, in San Francisco. And that's why this is the period of Sherlock Holmes and the mugshots and the fingerprints and so on. Who are these people? particularly when they move from country to country. It's a huge source of anxiety. We don't know who they are, but we do know this is the tail end of the Fenians, this period, and the start of Clan Naguil. It's the period of the Molly Maguires, so Irish secret societies uh, in 
the battles between the miners and the mine owners. There's a general strike, there's anarchists, there's socialists, and the atheists, which is the one thing where we really can pin them down, they're in the middle of all of this. So we don't know what he was up to, but we do know that he went to great lengths to keep it quiet. Yeah, maybe he was the haymarket bobber for all we know. His life starts with a mystery and kind of ends with a mystery as well, because you just alluded to the fact that he, he disappears. He drops out of sight. We see him in late 1913, after all this business with the fake letter and so on. He's just, he tells us he's just come back from Cambodia. It may be true. It may not be true. And that he's going on to do a tour, another tour of uh, Sri Lanka. Uh, and he meets this Sri Lankan guy who records it. And then he kind of fades out. Maybe he's in Thailand. There's a little fragmentary record. So we literally don't know. Did he change his name again, reinvent himself? Did he die quietly in some backwards temple? Sure, maybe he went back home to Ireland yeah, and bought himself a little white washed cottage in the corner of the glen as you go eastwards and settled down with Mary who broke his heart all those years ago. Who knows? Yeah. And of course, World War I comes up. So he's out of the colonial newspapers. And in any case, they're mortified because some of them have published obituaries of a guy who's not dead. So we don't know. You can make up your own ending to what happened to him. How old would he have been in that case when he um, when he did disappear? So if he's born in uh, 1856, which is what we think, um, he is um, around 56, 58. Yeah. So he has had health issues. He's had a tough life. Maybe he dies. Maybe he doesn't. But there's a 25-year period out of those 56 years as you say, where, 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 where you can make broad sweeping generalizations, but it's like, um, but there's, there's nothing specific there. Yeah, no, I mean, the, and this is absolutely not uncommon for you know, migrant workers in this period, you know, for the Irish who don't settle down, who don't keep the same name that they had back home. Uh, I think the one thing that we do know is that he's... You know, he never denies being Irish. He's happy to be Irish, but he's not the kind of sort of Boston Paddy's Day Parade Irish. He's not that sort of when the Irish became white gangs of New York. Uh, it's us against the world. We marry among our own. We're all Catholic, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He's not that. So, you know, like I've said, by the time he's in Rangoon, he's clearly he's gone native. He's totally stepping over those race boundaries. But he moves through a world that is a world of ethnic conflict. So the Liverpool docks, this is the period when he's there, when the Irish are battling the English to control the Liverpool docks. Um, his New York is the New York of gangs of New York. And then when he's on the road, this is the period after the Civil War. Um, there are severe conflicts between the Irish hobos and black hobos. The Irish are trying to monopolise even this for themselves. Really tight ethnic closure. Montana that he goes through. So I'll say first Chicago that he goes through notoriously. The, it's one of the places where the Irish build institutional power. 
Montana is where the Indian wars are happening. Yeah, it goes, so it's between the two big Indian wars, this, you know, the Battle of the Little Bighorn and then Wounded Knee. That's where he's going. The Irish are battling the Chinese uh, on the railways. So Irish gangs and Chinese coolies. Uh, the Irish are leading anti-Chinese riots in San Francisco. And there are specifically racist conflicts about using Asian workers on the ships. So there are attempts made to keep the Asians off the ships. So somewhere in all of this, he defects from that idea of this is what it is to be Irish. You know, if he ever bought into it, he goes, I'm not doing that. I'm sorry. I like these people. Yeah. And I think it is as simple as that. You know, he's, you know, he's clearly got some political awareness, but he's not, he's not an intellectual. He's not a member of an organization. Uh, but he is somebody who actually just likes people. And I think long before he becomes a Buddhist, he's going, Do you know what? I've worked with these Chinese guys. I like them. Yeah. I'm not going to join your mob. I'm not going to say they shouldn't work on the ships. I'm very happy working with them. And that, I think, is what brings them to Buddhism as well, is that when he comes to Asia, he actually likes people. He goes, oh, this is all right. And, you know, here's somebody who's left school in an increasingly repressive Ireland at the age of 12. The monks take him in. They teach him. He learns his letters properly. He's really proud of that. So he comes across like you know, some mature students that I've worked with, people who never had chances in life, who left school really early and are now delighted to be back in college. They're delighted to be studying something that matters to them. Yeah. And I think that's what brings him into it is, oh, do you know what? I like these people and they're treating me like another human being. I think we've got something going on here. You're listening to The Plastic Podcasts. We all come from somewhere else. It's more than just a hashtag. Having talked about the stories of Udamaloka, it seems only right to ask Lawrence Cox for his favourite. In this last section of the interview, we also talk about why discovering and telling tales such as these are important, not just for the sake of history, but also for today. Well, there is a fantastic story um, about him on a boat crossing the Ganges. And we have this from a great book, which is called uh, A Vagabond Journey Around the World. So back in 1904, 05, uh, there's this working class guy who's got a scholarship to Chicago, uh, but he paid to the university, but he pays his fees by working all summer. Uh, and then he goes back and he bets uh, the nice gentlemen who are most of his classmates that he can go around the world with nothing in his pockets. And he does. Yeah, he works his way around the world in about a year. So he gets to meet the most extraordinary people. It's a fantastic book, a guy called Harry Frank. This is the bestseller that uh, then hits uh, the Sunday Independent and the Independent when it's published uh, in 1910, 1911. That story goes around. So uh, Damaloka, sorry, not Damaloka, Harry Frank, this kind of hobo journalist guy, uh, has hooked up with another couple of white hobos and they're bombing it around India. And they run into this guy 
and they get chatting and they check him out and they go, yep, he really was a hobo. So this is one of the reasons why we're certain about the hobo bit. Irish people check out that he's Irish. The hobos check out, oh yeah, I was there. Uh, I heard that kind of story about the railway police in such and such a crossing or whatever. Yeah. So they recognize each other. And then there's a ferry across the Ganges and the Ganges is huge, right? These ferries take a long, long time to cross. And it's these three hobos uh, and this Irish Buddhist and uh, a bunch of Burmese pilgrims, in fact. So, yeah, people kind of on holiday, let's say, because that's what pilgrimage is. It's an excuse, to, you know, like going to Lourdes or whatever. It's an excuse to go on holiday, but with a religious aspect to it, of course. And there's this Indian Christian. So an Indian peddler who is now flogging Bible pamphlets. And your man is going around the boat trying to sell his Bible pamphlets to people, you know, like somebody would on the Cobble Street or whatever, Talbot Street at that corner there. And he sees this white guy in Buddhist robes and he goes, who are, what, what are you? Who are you? Where are you from? And he goes, I'm Irish. And he goes, well, Irish? You're a Christian. All Sahibs are Christian. Yeah, he's, he's as shocked as the colonialists are. He's, he's an Irishman who's changed, who's gone the other side. And uh, Damaloka picks him up and says, tell me about these pamphlets of yours. And he's an atheist. He knows chapter and verse of what is wrong with the Bible. He picks this poor guy apart. And uh, your man retreats into speaking Hindustani. We call it Hindi-Urdu today. And Damaloka carries on the conversation in Hindi-Urdu. He's not phased at all. <laughs> and the Burmese are in the background grinning away. So you've got to understand these. Burmese culture is not about direct confrontation, yeah, very common in Southeast Asia, the sort of Western display of macho aggressiveness. It's not what you do. And of course, they've just been conquered. But watching this white guy turned Buddhist take down an Indian who's converted to Christianity, oh, they love that. And they will come to hear this guy talk and they will donate and they will come out to support him when he's on trial. So that's part of what his use is to Burmese people, is he can do this kind of polemic that they can't and don't want to, that you wouldn't if you were a Burmese monk in this period. But you were if you were an Irish radical who'd crossed the states uh, during a time <laughs> of incredible turbulence. Stuff. Oh, yes. You know, it's like this is grist to the mill, isn't it? Absolutely. But it's, you know, it's fun and it matters. Yeah, because, you know, this is really important for, you know, what it means to be Irish today. You know, that we are breaking out of that very kind of monolithic, oppressive definition um, of the present and of the past. So one of the things Damaloka does, you know, in the context of the mother and baby homes or, you know, recent discussions about Ireland and empires to go, no, actually, not everybody did go along with this stuff. Be it not everybody felt you had to be Catholic, you could do different things, or not everybody felt you had to be on the side of the empire. It wasn't just the morals of the time. And, you know, the people who challenged that, maybe they were extraordinary, maybe they paid a price. 
but you can't just dismiss it by saying nobody knew any better, everybody was doing it, uh, it was just the day. So we can say that, we can unpick a bigger sense of who we have been, but then also to unpick a bigger sense of who we are. So, you know, we're talking now just a couple of weeks after George and Kensho was shot at, um, on the Dublin border. And we're starting to see a new wave of organizing uh, among um, second generation Irish kids who hadn't previously been in political organizations. There are obviously migrant led organizations, but we're seeing a lot more of it, a lot more people speaking for themselves. So bringing out that complexity of voices, the complexity of who does it mean to be Irish on the island, off the island, uh, and putting poor people's voices much more strongly in there, because those are the voices that get lost. So, you know, one of the appalling things about this report uh, is that it says, oh, well, we found no evidence of forced adoptions. And you have story after story from Survivor of babies being torn out of their arms, of them being tricked into signing stuff they were told was for something else, of being bullied and whatever, whatever. So there's a real question of how do you listen to poor people's voices if they didn't do the paperwork afterwards? How do you collect the stories of the people whose accounts of things are not naturally archived, that do not become part of the architecture of official Irishness? People who are disruptive, people who very often have gaps in their lives because they were on drugs or alcoholic or in a psychiatric institution or whatever it is. How do you allow those people to be real if they don't appear in the record uh, or in the newspapers in the way we'd like them to? How do we have a story of what it is to be Irish that's not just a kind of new establishment taking on board the convenient stories and excluding really all the victims, you know, because that's what we're talking about. You know, it's the people who left school at 12, the people who had to leave the country, the people who have gaps in their lives, the people who disappear, the bodies that we don't know where they are. In response to that, then I have to ask, what would be your answer to your own question? How do we gather those stories? In the short answer, of course, is we do the bloody work, you know, like Catherine Corliss. <laughs> Um, but the long answer is we think about how those stories exist, what form they exist in. So we do the sort of work, say, that Terry Fagan and the North Inner City Folklore Project have done for decades of collecting working class oral history, of saying, how do people tell their own story? Um, what does it look like collecting it, putting it together, even if it wasn't previously written down? You can go and ask, this is not the distant past. You can go and ask people, tell me about this stuff. And there's a kind of moving wall there as well, because it becomes more possible some of the time for people who are still alive to tell their story as they hear that more people want to hear it. As the shame and so on, starts to lift as we've seen more and more survivors organizations come forward as this stuff has become acknowledged more publicly it does become possible for people to tell those stories 
But you do have to have that question of what is evidence? So here's a story of my own, not a not directly a grim one, okay? Uh, I used to teach in Waterford IT. And Waterford IT uh, taught care workers who worked among other places in Ferry House. That's a whole different story. Um, but it was in the Good Shepherd Convent, the old Magdalen Asylum of Waterford. So we were teaching care workers in this old Magdalen Asylum and many of the office doors had bolts on the outside. Right? Nobody talked about it. It wasn't embarrassing enough to anybody that they would take action, you know, even just to remove that. It was just left there in plain sight. Yeah? A historical fact, which is evidently straightforward evidence of abuse. Yeah, you are locking people in. We have to remember Magdalene asylums were false imprisonment, right? So we know from Jobstown, that's a major offence. You can get life for, fal for false imprisonment. There was no legal basis ever for incarcerating anybody within the institution, let alone in a room within the institution. And yet it happened. And when people escaped, the guards caught them and brought them back. And there in a building that at that time was training care workers in Ireland in the late 1990s, there's just bolts on the door and people just walk past it and don't even see it. So we have to develop the capacity to actually see that. Yeah, and to keep on asking questions like, so where are all those bodies from Bespera? Yeah, where are they? What happened? So it can be done, but you have to decide to do it. And you have to try and see things, not from the point of view of the state, not from the point of view of the church, not from the point of view of professionals, but from the point of view of the victims and to go, in what ways could they tell their story? What kinds of evidence do we expect to find? And go out and look for those, rather than saying there is no evidence of forced adoption. There is no evidence of money changing hands. And when we see, um, and, and, and you talk about uh, second generation um, groups forming, and then we also see um, mixed race Irish groups and, uh, and and survivors groups forming and so forth. And, and, and you, you, you say that you, we see that after, after decades of um, silence and collusion, what then do you think is the reason why the, 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 then heads are being popped above the parapet? I think it's two things. And in the first instance, it is these extraordinary brave survivors. Yeah. So some of the people who came forward as individuals right at the very start, people like Christine Buckley, for example, next race, uh, Colin McGorman and so on. And then the various survivors organizations. So people who had survived the Magdalens, who had survived the industrial schools, uh, who had survived the mother and baby homes. We have yet to hear from the people who uh, survived forced psychiatric incarceration. Ireland had the highest rate in the world in the 1950s, something like 0.9% of the entire adult population were forcibly psychiatrically incarcerated. They were sectioned in the 1950s, yeah? And of course, that's a group where the capacity to speak or indeed just to survive is extreme. You know, right now, 
the uh, old central mental hospital is being redeveloped. Uh, and it's probably going to happen before there's a survivors group to say it. So that's one whole battle which has just got layers and layers and layers to it of the survivors organising and coming to speak and finding allies. The other thing is feminism and LGBTQ battles. Um, so breaking the stranglehold that the church and that politics of sexual respectability had, and then also new Irish groups breaking the stranglehold of a certain definition of what it is to be Irish because you know the kinds of conversation that are going on in different Irish families around this, the way people are minimising, the way people are dismissing, the way the report itself says, oh, the nuns were doing a, a much needed service for these poor women who were cast out. You know, that kind of, you know, this politics of memory, yeah, it, it goes in generations and we're comparable to where, say, Argentina or Spain are countries where the dictatorships go through to the 70s and the 80s, also with forced adoptions through religious agencies, yeah? And there are generational things, both of the survivors, but also of establishments, because you're now at the point where if you were to ever do somebody for forced imprisonment, they wouldn't have been a senior person at the time, yeah? Those people are safely dead and the mid-rank people are safely retired. There may be some elderly nuns and guards who were involved in forced imprisonment. So there's a generational thing um, that has to be gone through as well. Uh, but yeah, that, that politics of memory, that saying again and again, these things happened and we actually have to really take that on board. And we have to try and think about what that means and change, change ourselves of our sense of who we are to a more generous one and a more open one. You've been listening to The Plastic Podcasts with me, Doug Devaney, and my guest, Lawrence Cox. The Plastic Pedestal was provided by Zoe Lyons. Music by Jack Devaney. You can find The Plastic Podcasts at www.plasticpodcasts.com or you can email us at theplasticpodcasts at gmail.com or simply follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. The Plastic Podcasts are sponsored using public funding by Arts Council England.